This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. As we enter mid-August and as the end of this program draws nearer, we've been thinking a bit about legacies. How do legacies, particularly in sports, get passed on? This week, we're starting with a story about a coaching legacy. Here's Only a Game's Martin Kessler. As a young girl growing up in Brooklyn, New York, Cheryl Toussaint was fast. Cheryl would race against other kids in her neighborhood. But she didn't know you could join a team or that the sport could change your life. But when Cheryl was 13, she heard about a youth summer program that was holding a track meet at a nearby schoolyard. Some of my friends from the neighborhood were saying that they had racing going on out there. And since I'm always racing the kids on the block and I'm usually doing pretty good against them, why don't I go out and run against some real runners? I saw something extraordinary. I saw young women, young girls actually doing strides and calisthenics in a group. They looked like they were having fun. They were very organized. They had on uniforms and it just made me stop and watch and try to sort of understand. Remember, I'm 13 now. What on earth is going on out here? Cheryl was wearing a dress and sandals. She borrowed a pair of pants, sneakers, and a t-shirt from a friend. And she entered a 100-meter race totally unprepared, not dressed properly, and ended up finishing fourth. All three girls who finished ahead of Cheryl belonged to the same running team. After the races were over, the girls started practicing with their coach. Cheryl stuck around and watched. I was pretty uh, determined to find out who they were. After the practice ended, Cheryl asked one of the runners about the team. She said, hey, It's open to girls in the neighborhood. You need to go over there and ask that gentleman if if you can come. That gentleman was the team's coach, Fred Thompson. Fred ran track at the City College of New York. In 1958, nine years before the first African-American would sit on the Supreme Court, Fred graduated from law school at St. John's University. In 1963, he founded this team the Adams Track Club in Brooklyn. It was for girls and young women, at a time when there weren't many organized sports opportunities for girls. Girls are given a jump rope. Maybe nothing else. That's Fred speaking in a 1979 episode of the show Real People. So what we are doing is giving them competitive experiences, and the competitive experiences enhances their feeling of personal worth. They realize how good they are. The girls who wear the Adams jackets are girls who have achieved things. And three years after Fred Thompson founded the Adams Track Club, 13-year-old Cheryl Tucson approached him. He said, where do you go to school? That was his first question after asking me my name. Next, he asked Cheryl if she'd ever run before. She said no. He said, well, if I'm interested, the team practices every day after school at 3 o'clock, and all I needed to do was wear my sneakers, and I could wear shorts, or if I had a gym suit, I could bring that and show up. And I did. And I did. And when I got there, it was like serious business going on. I mean, the girls had a routine. They came in with their books, their bags. While they waited for practice to start, many of the girls did homework. They were very disciplined. They 
knew that they had to get in certain things before practice started. And when practice was over, everybody sort of gathered in groups and started heading home. Cheryl says this sort of structure and organization was new for her. She stuck around, and she learned more about her new coach. At first, Coach Fred Thompson might sound like the sort of committed coach you've heard about before, a strict disciplinarian and also something of a father figure, one of those coaches who requires their athletes to bring in their report cards every quarter. But Fred Thompson went beyond that. He spent his own money on the team. He's crazy, you know, and... That's Lorna Ford, a former Adams runner, speaking on that same 1979 episode of the show Real People. He takes his whole, his whole income and he just spends it on us until, well, maybe I'll get it back when I get from funds or stuff like that. And nobody would do that. Nobody. Cheryl says Fred also taught his runners how to best fold the New York Times and how to properly use silverware. It was amazing that he took that kind of interest in the detail of helping to groom us. He said it was very important how we carried ourselves as young women, as young Black women, as representatives of our families, of our community, and of our country. That last part, being a representative of the country, that would be particularly relevant to Cheryl Toussaint. Because after finishing fourth in that race against the girls from the Adams Track Club in her friend's pants, sneakers, and t-shirt, Cheryl got better and better. Her race was the 800 meter. She was among seven Adams runners who qualified for the 1972 U.S. Olympic trials. There, she could earn a spot at the Olympic Games. Fred took a leave of absence from his day job to focus on helping his runners. Let's just say that I'll be very happy to go back to work in September, Fred told the New York Times that summer. Right now, I am not the richest man in the world. Matter of fact, I'm broke. Cheryl remembers the night before the U.S. Olympic qualifier. That entire night, I I don't even think I slept. I really don't. I had a roommate, and I looked over every now and then, and I thought, oh, she she looks like she's resting pretty well. I don't (laughs) know if she was, but I... Just remember, my eyes were closed, the palm of my hands were were sweating, you know, were moist. And I thought, I'm not going to have the energy to run this race. Cheryl did have the energy. She qualified, becoming the first member of the Adams Track Club to make the Olympics. Fred Thompson was there in Munich to see Cheryl Toussaint win a silver medal in the 4x400-meter relay. After the games, Cheryl says Fred and the Adams Track Club got a lot of positive attention. Not just because Cheryl had gone to the Olympics, but because so many of the other girls were getting to college on scholarships. Fred was about to get some financial support. The Colgate Palmolive Company learned about the team from a TV report, and the company partnered with Fred to create something called the Colgate Women's Games, a series of track meets that would draw girls and women not just from Brooklyn, but all up and down the East Coast. Fred became the full-time director of the Games, which began in 1974. Cheryl competed in the second edition of the Games. Then she started working alongside her coach at the Colgate Women's Games. And over the next two-plus decades, she worked her way up from meet coordinator to assistant meet director in 1999. 
As the years passed, Fred put an idea in Cheryl's ear. That one day, I would be the likely or a likely candidate to be the meet director whenever he would, I guess, decide to retire. He felt I had the passion for it, I had the knowledge of it, and that I had earned over the years the respect of my peers and co-workers. But Cheryl had some doubts. After all, she thought, this was the largest and longest-running girls track series in the country. I felt, wow, that, uh, that, I'm, that's pretty daunting. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. You know, yeah, it's pretty daunting. <laughs> and so I wasn't too sure that that was where I would end up. But Cheryl says she was being primed the whole time to take over for Fred. And she says just like in her own running career where she kept improving and advancing, she'd also been building her skill set to take over the Colgate women's games. So when the time came and he was sort of saying, I think I'm going to have to step down and um, would be the one. And I I just at that point, I acquiesced. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) Fred retired in 2014. Cheryl took over as meet director. In the coming years, Fred's health declined. In January 2019, he died of Alzheimer's. The following December, Cheryl oversaw the first Colgate Women's Games since Fred's death. It was tough, no doubt about it. You can never prepare yourself to lose someone as great and as grand as he was. Before the last day of racing, Cheryl addressed the 200-plus runners who had made the finals, and she had an announcement. I also want to share with you that the founder and the director, former director of the Colgate Women's Games, the late Fred Thompson, was inducted into the USA Track and Field Hall of Fame. Cheryl says every time you think about an athlete who comes through the Adams Track Club or through the Colgate Women's Games, it's a reflection of what Fred Thompson has done. I compete in the 3,000 and the 1,500 meter run. That's 12-year-old Brooke Shepard, who first competed in the Colgate Women's Games in 2015. I didn't think it'd be really fun because I used to see my babysitter's daughter run and she looked so tired. So I was really scared. But <laughs> I mean, it was actually really fun and I want to continue. What, what was fun about it? The adrenaline I had, you know, like when they shot the gun, I'd have to sprint. Brooke and her sisters, Rain, 14, and Ty, 15, grew up in Brooklyn, just like Cheryl. They're all fast, and they've won junior Olympic medals, and they all compete at the Colgate Women's Games. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Cheryl, but I'm, I'm curious, what do you guys call her? Do you call her Cheryl or Coach Cheryl? I call her, I call her Cheryl. I see her a lot. Yeah. I would say, hi, Cheryl. The Shepherd sisters have competed at the games five years in a row. Cheryl Tassan is very nice. That's Ty. We've seen her a couple of times, and we always she always says hi to us and gives us warm hugs, and and then she always tells us how how amazing we're doing and gives us good luck. So yeah, she's she's an amazing person, and she inspires me because she's an Olympian. She was an Olympian, so I was just like, ah, I, I want to be like her a little bit. About four years ago, the Shepherd sisters and their mother experienced homelessness. But thanks in part to the publicity generated from the sisters' running success, filmmaker Tyler Perry learned about the family and decided to help. Here's the Shepherd sisters' mother, Tanya Handy, on the ABC show The View in 2017. Well, now I have a better job uh, by the grace of God. Yeah. And 
the beautiful Tyler Perry is going to pay my rent for two years. How can you not beat that? <laughs> Brooke, Rain, and Ty Shepard are already thinking about their futures, college, and hopefully the Olympics. Until then, they'll compete at the Colgate Women's Games, founded by Fred Thompson, now run by Cheryl Toussaint. That's only a game's Martin Kessler. In 1980, Don Starkell and his son set out on a 12,000-mile canoe journey filled with adventure, near tragedies, and lessons in cultural anthropology. The only real problems we ever had were with humans, but 99% of the people we met were so good to us, you know? That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. I don't want to tell you too much about this next story. It would ruin the surprise. But I will say that while many athletic feats take years of preparation and planning, few are as daring or as ill-advised as this one. Here's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. On the morning of June 1st, 1980, Don Starkell and his two sons climbed aboard Oriana, their orange custom 21-foot canoe, and launched on the Red River from a park near their home in Winnipeg. We're now going to the Amazon Hotel. <laughs> the Amazon Hotel was a seedy flop house on the outskirts of town. Those laughs might have come because friends and family members expected the Starkells to give up by the time they got there. Or they might have laughed to hide their fear. Because the Starkells' plan was to paddle 12,000 miles from Winnipeg to Belém, Brazil, on the mouth of the Amazon River. It was a crazy idea, but it began innocently enough. I told my dad when I was seven years old, I said, Dad, you know what I want to do one day? I want to walk to the jungle and be like a monkey, you know? That's Don's older son, Dana. The next thing you know, he was getting out books and researching rivers and connecting roots together and... It was a couple years later when I was nine years old that he came up to me and he said, Dana, how would you like to get in a canoe one day and we'll paddle so far south, we'll paddle right out of winter. You'll start to see snakes and parrots and monkeys hanging from the trees. And I'm like, yeah, monkeys, that's like what I want to be. Don Starkell spent the next 10 years planning a route. He estimated the trip would take two years. Many thought Don and his sons were nuts. Here's Dana's younger brother, Jeff. On my mother's side, you know, my aunts and uncles, most of them were basically saying, they're crazy, you're going to die, all this kind of stuff. Jeff was only 18 and had planned to study electronics in the fall. He had serious doubts about going. Dana, 19, was a guitarist in a working rock band, more of a dreamer and more apt to follow his nose for two years. The trio looked chipper and healthy as they launched on the Red River. But there was a lot going on in their heads. Again, here's Jeff. You know, I was leaving a lot behind in terms of friends and all the rest of it. Including a girlfriend in a really cool muscle car. But probably, like, the strongest emotion was just, what the heck are we doing here? <laughs> 
you know, I knew that we were going to be gone for a long time, but I certainly had no comprehension of the distance or all the dangers that were ahead. My dad did. He was in a whole different headspace than we were. My brother and I were going off to this big adventure, and my dad felt like he was going off to his execution. So why go? Don Starkell's love of canoeing came out of a childhood filled with neglect and abuse. When he was six, a judge gave him the choice of returning home or moving into an orphanage. He chose the orphanage. But when he was 10 years old, Starkell discovered a canoe owned by a foster family. He took to paddling in the creek that ran behind their house. There, he felt free, independent, and in control for the first time in his life. In 1950, Winnipeg was almost totally inundated by the flooded Red River. Starkell, by then a teenager, paddled to neighbors' houses delivering bread and milk. Later, he competed in hundreds of outdoor canoe races. A month into their journey, Don and his sons reached the outskirts of Minneapolis and entered the world's fourth longest river. The Mississippi was just a ton of fun in a lot of ways. People pretty much put out the red carpet for us everywhere we went. Boaters delivered beer and soda. Some of the locals treated them to home cooking or hearty meals at local restaurants. The Starkells felt they had been absorbed into the culture of the Mississippi, and they loved it. 700 miles later, they reached New Orleans, where they joined the Intracoastal Waterway, a series of inland canals protected from the Gulf of Mexico's fury. Overall, the trip was going well, but Jeff began to sense that his father was concerned about something. I, I don't think my dad was ever supremely confident that we would be able to do the Gulf portion of the trip. My sense was that he was quite worried, that he was sort of trying to put up a brave face to us, saying everything will be fine kind of thing. Don Starkell had some experience paddling in the ocean, but only in waters protected from wind and wave. His sons had none. The Starkells left the Intracoastal Waterway, paddling out of Port Isabel, Texas, and into the Gulf. After a few miles in Mexican waters, waves crashed over the sides of the canoe, which began filling with water. It was nearly impossible to paddle. They headed for shore, but they weren't sure how to land the canoe. My dad says, well, I think what we should do is we'll get in front of this wave and we'll paddle as fast as we can, right? which is probably the best thing to do. Which was the worst thing to do because we just ended up surfing like a surfboard. The wave came up behind us. We took off like a rocket and in front of the canoe dug in. whole canoe went catapulting head over heels. I was okay. I was right in front of the canoe, but my dad went, ah, sailing through the air. The Starkells struggled day after day to launch from shore. They tipped dozens of times before figuring out a reliable method and heavy seas along the coast of Mexico slowed them down. Their food and water dwindled. If their progress remained poor, they'd run out before they reached the next small city a couple hundred miles to the south. And then they got an idea. Why not navigate Laguna Madre? That's a shallow inland lagoon protected for over 100 miles by a series of barrier islands. That would be an easier paddle, right? And it was, until... All of a sudden we notice the water is getting you know, shallower and shallower and there's not really an opening to the gulf. There's not an easy way to get back. Laguna Madre is accessible only by two inlets many miles apart. But the Starkel's maps didn't show that. 
So we were paddling along and at some point the water became too shallow to paddle in. So we sort of got out and we started walking, dragging the canoe through the water. Like six, seven inches of water for miles and miles in there, cut up our feet and everything. And then at some point there's just no water at all. And then we're pushing through this slimy mud. It got to the point where every time you take a step, your foot would sink maybe an inch and this boiling hot muddy water would pour over your foot. It was just pure pain every time your foot went in. The canoe was now totally stuck with miles of mud on all sides. Only two gallons of drinking water and a little bit of food remained. They were baking under the blazing sun with no chance of hauling the canoe back to the gulf. Don and Jeff left Dana with the canoe and walked for seven hours to the small coastal town of La Pesca. There, they purchased food and water and hired a driver to meet them. They lugged the supplies back to the Oriana. After a miserable few days, they managed to dislodge the canoe and carry everything through the hot sludge to the road. Their driver showed up and drove them into town where they'd keep an eye on the sea and wait for better conditions. But the waves were coming in so strong we couldn't launch the canoe, and my dad felt there was no way we were ever going to be able to paddle on the Gulf. We decided the trip was over, the Starkells had already accomplished something nobody else had, paddling a canoe from Canada to Mexico. They decided to stay in the relatively cushy city of Veracruz and become men of leisure for the winter, or maybe longer. My dad said, you know, you can go back home if you want, or you can stay here and play guitar for a couple years. I said, I'll stay here and play guitar. There was some talk of resuming the trip in the spring, but by November, Jeff was getting antsy. I felt like, I mean, you don't want to abandon my brother and my dad. But on the other hand, I have a feeling like life is passing me by. I want to get on with my education. And so I decided to head back to Canada. On November 6, 1980, Jeff flew back to Winnipeg. It was terrible. When Jeff left, we didn't even know if it was possible to paddle the canoe with two people. Without Jeff, I was thinking, how on earth are we ever going to do this? Dana played his guitar for a couple months while Don snorkeled. They considered abandoning the voyage for good, but the weather improved, and on February 20th, 1981, eight months into their voyage, Don and Dana resumed the trip. A couple months later, Don and Dana were around the Yucatan Peninsula, out of Mexico and into Belize. Local fishermen there advised them to paddle several miles out to a series of barrier islands where it would be safer going. On May 5th, they decided to camp on a small, picturesque island a few miles off the coast. Everything seemed fine. And that particular night, it was glass calm. But my dad sort of had a sixth sense about things. He went over to the canoe, and he tied up the canoe as though we were going to get hit by a hurricane. He just, I don't know, maybe it was just too nice out or something, you know? And there was a little tiny, like a fishing shack on stilts. We fell asleep just right on the wood floor there. And in the middle of the night, my dad woke me up. He says, listen to the radio, and the station just went dead. There was a kind of a hatch on this shack. He says, lift up that hatch and see if you can see anything. And I looked out, and all I could see was a black wall coming towards us. It was Tropical Storm Arlene. Getting stranded miles from the Belize coast without a canoe or supplies, that could be the end of more than the voyage. The wind started picking up. It blew the waves right over the whole island. We were so scared, we didn't know what to do. You know, my dad tried to open up the front door to look at where the canoe was. He couldn't even get the door open. The wind was so strong. And so eventually we just laid down there during the storm and went to sleep. 
And in the morning, it was peaceful again, but we figured our canoe was gone for sure. We opened up the door, and the canoe was just sitting there floating. Don had tied the canoe to a mooring using 20 knots. Exactly one had held. While Don and Dana navigated the Central American coast, Jeff was studying back in Canada. He followed their journey via the occasional phone call or postcard. The voyagers began to quarrel. They suffered from sunburn, biting insects, and salt sores. But their worst ordeal was still ahead of them. They'd been warned of pirates, drug runners, and soldiers in Honduras and Nicaragua. They'd been harassed a few times, mostly without incident. Then one day, they stopped to rest at Laguna Caratasca on the Honduran coast. They befriended two local women who offered to prepare a meal. So I sat down on this big coconut tree and started practicing guitar. My dad's walking around with a machete collecting up coconuts. And while I'm practicing guitar, these two guys come along and they start talking to my dad. Don spoke passable Spanish. And then they left and my dad walked over to me and he said, you know, Dana, those two guys I was just talking to, they're quite concerned that we're going to get robbed here, that, you know, where our canoe is, it's not safe, that we should haul it back towards where these thatched roof houses are. We weren't interested in doing that. We weren't that concerned about anybody stealing our stuff really at that point. The allegedly good Samaritans returned a couple hours later. And this time one guy was on a white horse and the other guy had a big shotgun. And they come marching up to us, raise the shotgun just slightly above our heads and blast it off, start screaming at us that now we're going to listen to them and we're going to move our canoe. It was at this point that Don and Dana realized these men were actually rogue Honduran soldiers. Dana thinks he now knows what they were planning. The whole reason they wanted us to move our canoe up there was that they wanted to steal our stuff from us, but they didn't want to have to carry it up there. They wanted us to carry it there for them first, you know. But to keep this stuff, they figured that they'd have to kill us. So their plan was they were going to walk us seven miles down this road there in Honduras and execute us. So now the sun's starting to go down. They tie us up a little bit, and they start marching us down this road. We're trying to think, you know, how can we get out of this predicament? We started filling their heads as much of lies as we could, saying that we were on this big expedition. The United States Army knew exactly where we were. They were following us. They had helicopters. and If anything happened to us, they'd come in there and blow everything up. That plan seemed to work. Instead of leading them into the jungle, the soldiers marched Don and Dana seven miles to an army base, where they were interrogated and released. Dana wondered how and why they had been spared. Had tall tales saved their lives? The crazy thing was, these two women that we had befriended earlier, they told these two soldiers, they said, if you kill them, we're going to report you. And they put their lives on their line for us, because we had just been friendly to them for 15 minutes. The Starkels got out of Honduras as quickly as they could. They paddled past Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia. In Caracas, Venezuela, they befriended a banker and his family. For three days, Don and Dana stayed in their luxurious home, where they enjoyed fine meals, rest, and time for reflection. Dana, as always, played guitar. Don updated his audio diary. This is one of the few recordings that survived the frequent capsizing and thefts along their journey. Had a lot of funny problems. Had a lot of hassles from police and officials and idiot people that, you know, leave us alone. But uh, things are good. We're happy that we're on the trip, you know, and we're, 
we're happy where you know where we are right now and uh, I don't think in ever in my life I'm going to be sorry for taking the trip because it's been just just an incredible learning experience. The duo detoured to Trinidad and Tobago for another extended rest. Then they paddled in the ocean for the last time and reached the delta of the Orinoco River. The day that we left that big massive bay there from Trinidad and entered those little tributaries, I mean, it was just such a feeling of peace, absolute peace. They were overjoyed to leave Central American war zones and the dangers of Colombia for an inland landscape featuring jungle and shade. And we're going along on the river one morning, and just, boom, out of nowhere, this giant dolphin jumps right out smack in front of me. Comes completely out of the water and down. Solid pink. And so I said, Dad, did you see that? It's like, what the heck was that? It was a tonina, a freshwater dolphin that schools in South American river basins. They love to follow us, but they're kind of shy. It's hilarious. After two months paddling upstream on the Orinoco, the Starkells joined Rio Negro, where they saw lots of monkeys and snakes and crocodiles, the animals of Dana's childhood imagination. They subsisted on bananas, coconuts, and the occasional paca, a large rodent weighing up to 15 pounds. They slept and ate in ramshackle huts of the families who lived along the shore. They learned that some of the poorest people in the world were also the most generous. Families who had close to nothing were often willing to share everything they had. The only real problems we ever had were with humans, but 99% of the people we met were so good to us, you know? On March 31, 1982, Don and Dana finally entered the Amazon River, which met all of Dana's expectations as a lush junglescape, right? Not a bit, not even close. I would say the number one animal that we saw in the Amazon was actually a cow. You kind of come around a sweep of the river and thinking maybe here you'll see a crocodile or something and there's a big cattle ranch. You know, the last thousand miles is more like a big inland ocean. It's massive. The Amazon was in spring flood and they paddled down river with ease thinking, we're really going to make it. Exactly 23 months after departing Winnipeg, Don and Dana Starkel glided into Belém they had accomplished the goal many had called impossible. They had covered 12,182 miles. It should have been a moment of triumph and celebration, but for two solid years, every single day when we woke up, we had this goal and a purpose. And coming into Belém, as happy as we were to know that you know, you're safe, you're alive, that was a beautiful feeling. But there was definitely a huge sadness in the sense that the trip and the adventure itself were over, you know. Dana and his father wandered around Belem for a couple days, feeling aimless and lost. Then they made their way home, first by freighter, then by rental car. They drove to Grand Forks, North Dakota, where Jeff met them with the family's familiar red Datsun. He was scared of us. <laughs> they just had this look to them almost like wild animals. They look like trouble. And this is, now we had been living on the ship for over a month. And we were all cleaned up and everything. And we felt like we were really civilized again. Dana says it was probably harder for friends and family back home to make the adjustment to their return than it was for them to resume their former lives. Coming back to Canada was like the easiest thing in the world. All I did was just lock myself in the house and 
and didn't really want to go out very much. So what is the lesson of the Starkel's voyage? And why did Don Starkel subject his sons to the possibility of malnutrition, thirst, drowning, and summary execution? I am as disturbed by this story as I am attracted to it. But Dana says that hidden within the apparently insane voyage was a gift his dad had never fully articulated. From the outset, it had been one of the Starkel's goals to learn as much as they could about the people they met and about human nature. You grow up in Canada or United States, it's impossible to have a perspective of what you've got. It just is. You know, it's not until you live in the third world, actually live in people's homes with them day after day after day, and you're hungry yourself and, and you go through all these things, that you can truly kind of look at what you've got and really appreciate it. Some have criticized Don Starkel and his frantic miles-at-all-cost method, claiming it's impulsive, risky, and downright perilous. But ask his sons about him, and they'll paint a portrait of a man who, though at times self-centered and recklessly driven, was also thoughtful and generous. I have so much respect for my father, I can't tell you. I always will. I think about him all the time and miss him. Don Starkel died in 2012 after a battle with cancer. He was 79. Jeff now lives in Ottawa. Dana's a classical guitarist living in Iowa. They still take canoe trips, much shorter ones. From time to time, they visit the little Winnipeg Park where they began their voyage to the Amazon. There, a bronze plaque commemorates their journey, ending with the words, this incredible adventure, in spite of all odds, has been recognized as a world record for the longest journey ever made by canoe. That story came from Only a Game's Gary Wallach. It first aired in October of 2017. You can learn more about the Stark Hell's voyage at paddletotheamazon.com. When Jackson Ingalls was 10 years old, he was with his mom, a girls' basketball coach, at a training camp game. But only one referee showed up. And I was kind of like, well, there's a whistle in the car. Why don't I try this? That's coming up. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Only a Game NPR. doesn't love a good story. On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. Next week on Only a Game, as a young athlete, Sherelle George was always told to stop showboating. Then a team full of showboaters, the Harlem Globetrotters, came calling. But now it's time for Charlie Pierce and the week's news. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Karen. 
NCAA President Mark Emmert has been rather quiet, at least publicly, as schools and conferences try to figure out their fall sports schedules. Well, on Thursday, he emerged in a video posted to the NCAA Twitter feed to say this. We cannot now, uh, at this point, have fall NCAA championships because there's not enough schools participating. So sadly, tragically, that's going to be the case this fall, you know, full stop. Emmert says the only exception to this tragic situation is FBS football, which as of this very moment has enough teams to go ahead. What do you make of all this? There just simply, there shouldn't be sports this fall anywhere of any kind, not in colleges. The only way to conduct sports in the current situation is to do the bubble thing. Baseball can't figure out what to do and how to do it. And in college sports, of course, because of their this very weird bifurcated system that they have where the NCAA president has no control over college football, or at least at its top level, you know, they can't figure out what to do either. So the simple thing to do is just to say you're not going to have this. Well, the Big Ten and Pac-12 have already decided to postpone their 2020 seasons, but the Big 12 and the rest of the Power Five conferences are planning to play, at least for now. I mean, this is just a huge mess. It is. You know, the entire administrative infrastructure of college athletics is teetering right on the edge of a cliff. There's no leadership, but there are too many leaders. All it's going to take is one of these Big 12 or SEC teams to have an outbreak, and everything will collapse. And I have a feeling there are a lot of people who are in such denial about this right now that they're just not going to be able to figure it out. Well, as you say, the only real way to do this is in a bubble, and the NBA has successfully made it to the playoff portion of bubble play. Who's your pick to take it all? I'm going to pick the Boston Celtics, who are playing extraordinarily well right now. I mean, revived Gordon Hayward has become very important. Jason Tatum, once again, is edging into the top of the top echelon. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be a complete homer here and pick the, <laughs> and pick the Celtics. Venus and Serena Williams met on the court for the 31st time in their careers at the Top Seed Open on Thursday. Serena won the hard-fought second-round match 6-3, 3-6, I will never grow tired of watching these two play each other. You? No. And, you know, while Serena is, is unquestionably the superior player and has been for a long time, look, at Venus took the middle set. Yeah. So you always get a good show. You, uh, you always get a good show between these two. Remember last week, Charlie, when we discussed how crazy the MLB schedule has gotten due to COVID-19 postponements? Yes. Has it gotten crazier? It has. That was before the St. Louis Cardinals missed another week of play due to a new batch of positive tests. They are scheduled to take the field this weekend for the first time since July 29th. They'll face the White Sox then five games in three days against the Cubs. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. The way things are going, they're going to have the World Series. And whether or not the Cardinals make it, they're still going to be playing baseball two weeks after the World Series is over. (laughs) They're going to be playing inter-squad games. (laughs) And finally, Charlie, on Thursday, injured Nationals pitcher Steven Strasburg was ejected from a game after disagreeing with an umpire's calls. Thing is, Strasburg wasn't on the field or in the dugout. He was sitting in the empty stands. Where is he supposed to go now? (laughs) He just said something (laughs) that has been said in stands 
forever. I mean, this really is something new about pandemic baseball. The umpires can hear everything, right? That used to be, you know, just the case when you you were going to Indians games where you could hear everything (laughs) because there wasn't anybody in the stands. But uh, this is really amazing. And it's a very good question. You know, where do you send the guy if you've ejected him from the stands in the middle of a pandemic? Maybe they need to get one of those those old Airstream trailers that the Ooh. astronauts used to go into after <laughs> they got back from the moon. Charlie Pierce is the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing 2019, and he joins us each week at this time on Only a Game. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you, Karen. As a new school year approaches, there are lots of uncertainties. But for rising high school senior Jackson Ingalls, the goal has been the same for as long as he can remember. Reporter Eden Lossie has the story. For Jackson Ingalls, basketball was a birthright. He grew up splitting time between gyms and a home where basketball was always on TV and in conversations. That's what happens when your mom is a legendary high school coach with five state titles to her name, and your dad is a former Division II college player. But Jackson's introduction to the game wasn't exactly a pleasant one. We've got a a ball rack that's about six feet tall, and there was one time when I was climbing the ball rack and it did fall over, but I did fall off of the (laughs) ball rack, so that was kind of not good. Poor little guy had a big head, so it was hard for him to keep his balance. So he he uh, he kind of tip toppled over, and and then uh, the ball rack kind of went on top of him. That's Jackson's mom, Doreen. He was uh, he wasn't quite two, so he he was pretty young. <laughs> I remember what he was wearing and everything, you know, his little basketball outfit and his basketball shoes. And I'm like, oh my gosh! <laughs> so I ran over there, and he was he was all right, you know. He's he was. Uh, you know he's pretty pretty tough little guy, and so he didn't really cry much. And um, and then he started dribbling, so I knew he was okay. <laughs> Jackson learned to stay off the ball rack, and his mom learned that her little boy was tough. Good thing too. He would need that toughness down the line when he discovered his passion. You probably think you know where this story is going. Here's a kid who grew up in a gym with parents who live and breathe basketball. He's going to grow up to be a star player, right? Wrong. Jackson had other ideas. He wanted to be a referee. Jackson's affinity for the striped uniform and whistle is surprising, not only because of his age, but also because his parents spend lots of time arguing with refs on the sidelines. It, it came as a shock a little bit. You know, it, it is surprising, but it, it, and that's what makes it kind of special. It's not exactly a glamorous position. I mean, you're always getting yelled at and whatnot. And he, um, he just loves it. That's his passion. Jackson discovered his love of officiating seven years ago when he was just 10 years old. We were down at, uh, I want to say, Gross Point South, Michigan, and uh, the girls had a camp and only one referee had showed up. The girls are the St. Ignace High School team his parents coached together. 
And I was kind of like, well, there's a whistle in the car. Why don't I try this? He knew the rules, um, you know, but he hadn't really <laughs> reffed a varsity scrimmage yet or anything like that. And so um, we're like, well, you know, Kevin Richards is the Gross Point South coach, and I know him pretty well. And um, the referee that was reffing was really generous. And we're, we're like, hey, Jackson could probably ref, you know, so... He had his whistle, and he went out there, and he did a great job, and he held his own. It was the perfect scenario for Jackson. If his mom hadn't known the other coach, or the official wasn't as kind, he may not have gotten the opportunity. And after that day, refing girls who were five, six, seven, and even eight years older than him, Jackson was hooked. He started using his free time to study the rules of basketball. From there, he worked his way through the officiating ranks, starting with middle school games and summer scrimmages. Jackson worked hard at his craft, but he had something else going for him. For a while, at least. There are pictures of Jackson refing at a young age, with his striped official shirt buttoned all the way up, a red whistle around his neck, and boyish blonde bangs hanging over his forehead. He was just really cute running up and down and you know he had that cute factor being a little guy doing that he he had that for quite a few years as he got older I was like you better be, make sure you're good because the cute factor is kind of gone now because you're kind of bigger now so you gotta make sure that you get your get it all correct that was no problem for Jackson he was ready to put in the work you could just see that he loved it, you know, even when we're watching games and then, you know, you take your DVR and you go backwards to replay a good play. You know, my younger son, Johnny, is like, oh, did you see that finish? And then Jackson's like, did you see how he rang that call up? I mean, it was just, it's just a natural, you know that that's what he's gravitating towards. One day, Doreen found her son practicing in the yard. I was so excited. I'm like, oh, cool, he's out there shooting and blah, blah, blah. And I opened up the door to go see what he was working on. And he's working on the jump ball. He's throwing it up. <laughs> he's working on, on that. So I'm like, well, you know, OK, I thought you were making, working on some post moves. But good job, buddy. Jackson, now 17, practices every day at home and even in the hallways when he's at school. You know, in the morning before you, you go to school or, or work for most people, you practice your mechanics and your signals and the, for about five minutes, and that, that helps a lot. So when the intense moment comes at the end of a game, you know, you have the mechanic down, and it's muscle memory in your head, and you're ready to go. Jackson worked his way up from middle school games all the way to the Division II college level. The certification process took about five years. It includes training camps, tryout camps, and study groups with other officials. At every camp and in every study group, one thing is always the same. So far, I've been the youngest at a camp. Um, we'll see, though. You never know. Age has never been a deterrent for Jackson. Instead, it served as a motivator. A lot of my teachers and a lot of and my parents and grandparents would say, if you put as much time into your, you know, your science and your English homework as you did officiating, you'd be valid Victorian. So, so I put a lot of time into it, I think. Jackson is past the point of being a little kid who looks cute in his officiating outfit. Now, as his mom says, he has to know his stuff. And he does. I definitely learned that there's a lot you need to know to, to be able to ref, you know. It's easy to sit up in the stands and, or sit at the bench and say, you know, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing this? And I finally got out there and did it. And it, and it really is eye-opening. You know, you, you realize that there's a lot to officiating that most people don't understand. Jackson admits that he does get nervous occasionally. His first college game was one of those times. I did a, uh, like an exhibition game, which is kind of sort of a preseason scrimmage. 
up at uh, Lake Superior State, and uh, that was that was really nervous for that game. But like always, once once the ball goes up, it's game time, so better be ready to go. You know, there's the casual, the whole crowd boos or they all cheer, but but that doesn't. I mean, that's part of the game. You know, we just have to kind of ignore that, but but you know, enjoy the atmosphere as well. To Jackson, officiating isn't just a hobby. It's his passion. You know, since he was 10, he was saying, I'm going to ref in the NBA, you know, and so who knows if that's what's going to happen for him. I can see him going to college, uh, getting into either business or some kind of political type, you know, maybe a, a, a who knows what he's going to get into that way. He's got a lot of different aspirations, but he definitely wants whatever his career is, he wants to be able to keep refing. In February, when he turns 18, the high school senior will have almost eight years of officiating to his name. So don't be surprised if a few years from now you turn on an NBA game and see Jackson Ingles with a whistle and a striped shirt. That's reporter Eden Lossie.